it's so good to be back with pastors Buddy and Gay. Uh, but I noticed, Buddy and Gay, when I, when I came in here, I noticed that um, there weren't really any uh, brazen idols. There weren't any uh, golden statues. Uh, and I just, uh, wow, that really, that kind of made an impression. No brazen idols, no golden statues. <laughs> but, but I wonder, even though there's not any statues and, 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 and brazen images, that doesn't really make us exempt from idol worship, does it? The most important ingredient in any kind of writing is this essential element of good versus evil. Without that, you don't have a plot, do you? The story never really rises or falls. In fact, everything just, just stays flat, never really gets off to a beginning or has an end. Well, in today's true story, found in the Old Testament book of Judges, it's important to know right off the bat who's who. And so in today's true story, and I, do ne I, I need to let you know that I believe the whole Bible is true. And I hate to use the word story because oftentimes we, we connect that with a fiction feel. But the, the stories in the Bible are true. They're not fiction. And in today's true story adventure in the Old Testament, uh, we need to know who the good and the bad are right off the bat. And so the good guys in today's story will always be the Israelites. Now, let's just make sure we all know who they are. They are God's chosen people. At times we find them confused and afraid and even disobedient, but yet they are God's chosen people. And so in today's story, they will always be the good guys. Now, um, the bad guys are the Midianites. And for seven years, they've, they've come rushing down the hills into the territory of the good guys, the Israelites, and they've been stealing their crops. And so before we really get into the thick of the story, though, let's just rewind a, a couple of steps and make sure that we're all on the same page. Okay, you remember the good guys, the Israelites, God's chosen people, are the ones whom God rescued from Pharaoh's cruel rule. Remember, they were slaves under Pharaoh for 400 years. He's the one who forced them to bake bricks out in the hot sun. And then finally, God raised up Moses. God raised up uh, Joshua. God raised up Aaron. And he led his people uh, to a specific portion of land that he deemed the promised land. Okay, so they're going from over here, Pharaoh's cruel rule, over there to the promised land. Now, it's going to take them over 40 years to get there. Now, it really shouldn't have taken them that long. It wasn't that that far of a distance that would take us over 40 years. But do you know why it took them so long? Because they had a man who was leading them. And men will not stop and ask for directions, will they? <laughs> Moses, stop, pull over, ask for directions. Yeah, do you know where the promised land? But I guarantee you, if Deborah or Sarah or Phoebe or Mary would have been leading that group, probably would have been there in a week and a half tops. That's beside the point. Anyway, we're going to catch up with them now as they're in the promised land, okay? So this morning, that's where we are. We catch up with the good guys, the Israelites, God's chosen people, in the specific portion of land that God promised them. And living in the promised land really was a dream come true. I mean, it was everything that God had promised it would be. The crops were growing big, the land was fertile, everything went great for a while. But oftentimes... When things get easier, 
people tend to get a little lax. And as time went on, the children of Israel stopped honoring and obeying God. And they stopped observing what he had told them to do. You see, God had promised them blessing, but he'd also promised that if they didn't live in obedience to him, that things wouldn't go well, and that's exactly what happened. You see, when we allow other things to occupy the space in our lives that God deserves, he will command that we clear the stage. Okay, now we come to the bad guys, the Midianites. Now remember, seven years, they've come rushing down the hills into the country, uh, into the territory, the promised land of the Israelites, and they'd attack them, and they'd looking forward to reaping the benefit. And like clockwork, they come down and they steal it from you. They attack you, they kill some of you and your family, and they steal your crops. Now what they can't steal and take with them, they burn and destroy. So they steal, kill, burn, and destroy. Man, so this is leaving God's chosen people literally with nothing. Nothing. And it's been going on for seven long years. Okay, this is where Gideon comes onto the scene. But he's not actually on the scene center stage. <laughs> he's really behind the scenes. He's backstage. He's hiding. Where is he? Where is he hiding? Well, he's in a wine press. What's he doing in a wine press? Well, he's threshing, sifting and threshing wheat, or that's what he's trying to do. This is a picture of a wine press. As you can see, it's just a small enclosed structure, great for stomping on grapes because it's a wine press. But you know, don't you, to, to sift and to thresh wheat, you need a big, wide open area. So you can throw the wheat up in the air and the wind blows through the shaft, and then the, the wheat drops to the ground. And so that's how you sift and thresh wheat. You can't do it in a tiny little enclosed circle, but this is where Gideon is. This is Gideon trying to sift and thresh in a wine press. <sighs> it's just not working. Why? Why is he in a wine press? It's the exact opposite of a threshing floor. But Gideon is in a wine press because he's afraid of having his food stolen. Gideon's afraid of the Midianites killing him. He's afraid of losing everything. So he's in this wine press trying to sift and to thresh wheat, but it's just not working. Maybe you know what it's like to be in a wine press. Maybe you know what it's like to be in, in, a, in a situation or an environment or a place that's far less than God's ideal for you. Well, that's what Gideon was. He's hiding. Maybe some of you are hiding. Maybe you've been victimized. Maybe you've been hurt. Maybe you've been abused. You're hiding. You're in this far less than ideal place than God really wants you. But you're just trying to hold on to what little you have. You're just trying to hold on to the little money you do have in your checking account. You're just trying to make next month's house payment. You're just trying to hold on to that job that's shaky. Just trying to keep the marriage together. Well, I want you to know that God sees you and he cares about where you are. Now, you've heard 
probably all your life. God loves you, and he does, but he also cares about where you are. And God cared about where Gideon are. He knew exactly where Gideon was. He knows exactly where you are this morning. And he sent an angel to deliver an important message to Gideon. Notice what the angel says when he speaks to Gideon. He says, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Mighty warrior? <laughs> really? Sir? Mighty warrior? Anything but mighty warrior. Where is he? He's hiding in a wine press. He's anything but a mighty warrior. Wouldn't it be great if you could stop focusing on who you say you are and focus instead on who God says you are. You see, though society saw Gideon as a wimp, they saw him as a loser. And even scripture says he was the least in his family. God saw Gideon with all the potential that he had created him to be. And God created Gideon to be a mighty warrior. So when God looked at Gideon, he didn't see a person hiding. He saw a mighty warrior because that's who he created him to be. My friends, I want you to know that God has created each one of us to be a mighty warrior. That's right. He is calling Salem Fields Community Church to rise up and to be mighty warriors in these cities, Fredericksburg and the surrounding cities. Well, Susie, I don't know, mighty warrior, that sounds okay for the men, but I'm a woman. I don't want to be a mighty warrior. I want you to know that mighty warrior in the Hebrew language, that phrase, mighty warrior, is also used, the same phrase, in Proverbs, uh, uh, Proverbs 31 when God talks about the godly woman. So there's a feminine side to mighty warrior and there's a masculine side to mighty warrior. And God has created all of his children to be mighty warriors. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see your failures or your past. As Buddy said in his prayer, he's crazy about you. Oh, he's madly in love with you. Not mad at you, but madly in love with you. And he sees you with all the potential that he created you to be. And he has created each one within the sound of my voice to be a mighty warrior. We are mighty warriors. We can be. That's who God has created us to be. Okay, now as we move through the story, we're going to see that God is going to call Gideon to action. That's right. He's going to use a man that we would not have chosen. But again, God sees him with all the potential he's created him to be. So God is going to move Gideon into battle. He's going to call him to lead the army of the Israelites, his chosen people, against the bad guys, the Midianites. He's going to use a frightened young man who's what? He's hiding in a wine press. <sighs> Remember, he knows what he can become. And God knows what you can become too in the power of his Holy Spirit. But first, God is going to comfort Gideon. He needs to comfort him, and he needs to calm his fears. So let's look at the scripture. Judges 6.23 says, But the Lord said to him, Peace! Do not be afraid. You are not going to die. Before God will use Gideon publicly, he's going to challenge him 
privately. Gideon, uh, there's a problem in your family. Uh, your, your dad has some Baal altars in his house, in his household. Now, a Baal altar uh, was an image, was an idol. Uh, we hear all about Baal through the Old Testament. Actually, Queen Jezebel is the one who was responsible for introducing the northern kingdom of Israel to Baal worship. And so Gideon's dad had some Baal idols and altars built to Baal in his household. God wants to use Gideon to be a mighty warrior and to lead God's people against the enemy. But first, he's going to deal with him privately. God wants to do that with us too. He wants to deal with you privately before he ministers through you in a powerful way. And he does want to work in and through each one of you in a mighty and powerful way. Okay, Gideon, before you lead my army of people against the enemy, first I need you to deal with your own family. Gideon, I need you to tear down those Baal altars. In other words, he's asking Gideon to clear the stage. Remember, when other things begin to occupy the space in our lives that God deserves, he will command that we clear the stage. And so let's look at scripture, Judges 6, 27. So Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him. He's smashing, he's demolishing, he's removing the Baal idols. Let's just pause for a moment. What is an idol? Well, an idol can be anything that is as important as God, something that's more important than God, or can simply be something that we place too much time and focus and attention and energy on. We tend to think of an idol as something that's evil, and many times it is. But it can start out being not evil, like money can become an idol. Money in itself isn't evil, but it can become an idol in our lives. And so sometimes idols are evil. Pornography can be an idol. Yes, that's evil. Uh, uh, drug use. Yes, that's alcoholism. Uh, we know those things are definitely things that Satan wants us to get involved in. But let me challenge you to think of, of this. Could an idol be something that's not evil? It actually could be. It's not just about golden cows anymore. You see, we have immoral, and we know what that is. That's the bad stuff. And we have moral, the good stuff. But what about things that are in the middle? That's amoral. In other words, it's neutral, like popcorn. It's not immoral. It's not moral. It's just neutral. It's just right in the middle. So it could be that... There could be an idol in your life, and in a few moments I want to share about an idol that cropped up in my life. But an idol could be your children, it could be your parents, it could be your boyfriend, your girlfriend, it could be your spouse, it could be your career, your checking account, your savings account, it could be an, uh, a, a video game, it could be Instagram, it could be Pinterest, it could be anything that you focus too much attention on and are investing too much time or money or energy in. So Gideon did what God told him to. He crushed the idols. Let's read the rest of Judges 6, 27. So Gideon took 10 of his servants, and he did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of the men of the town, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. Okay, Gideon's still afraid, but he's still walking in obedience to God, isn't he? God said, take down the idols. Gideon did it at night, didn't want anybody to see him. That's okay, but he's still walking in obedience. He's becoming, he's in the process of becoming the mighty warrior that God has created him to be. 
And so he, he smashes the Baal idols. And oh, the men of the city are furious. Maybe you desire to be used by God. That's a great desire. And God wants to use you again. He wants to do big things in you and through you. But before he does that, he's going to say, clear the stage. In other words, he's going to say, get a good hard look at your life. Are there any idols in your life? Is there anything that's too important to you? Anything you're spending too much time or focus or energy or money on? If so, then, then it's an idol. Now, any of us can have an idol. None of us are exempt. As I mentioned, I'm not exempt. No one is exempt. Even an evangelist can have an idol. And I want to share with you about the idol that came into my life. It doesn't take a lot to make me happy. A big Coke... In a, in a cup of crushed ice makes me really, really happy. I love Coca-Cola. I especially love that little sting right there as it's going down. You know, Pepsi doesn't have that, but right there, Coke's got that little sting that goes right down. I love that. Love the sting, love the taste, love the smell, love the feel. I love Coca-Cola. Now, as Gay mentioned, I used to work for Focus on the Family. I was there almost 20 years. That was in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Well, I moved back home three years ago, and home is Bethany, Oklahoma. It's connected to Oklahoma City, so I just say Oklahoma City. It's all connected together. And I, I, I realized after I moved in and unpacked, oh my goodness, I'm only maybe half a mile, just a few blocks from Sonic. Now, I don't know if they have Sonic in these parts. Do you have Sonic? Oh, my Lanta. Don't you love Sonic? I mean, their crushed ice makes any drink better, doesn't it? I love Sonic, and I realize after I unpack, whoa, I'm only half a mile, maybe not even that far from Sonic. And I also realize that if you get to our Sonic by 10 o'clock in the morning, you can get a large soft drink for only 99 cents. And so I would wake up each morning and quickly, mentally go through my list of things to do, and then I would think, okay, now can I get all this done and make it to Sonic by 10 o'clock so I can get my Coca-Cola, large Coca-Cola for only 99 cents and I would rush around and try to make it to Sonic and I'd get my large Coke for 99 cents and then usually I'd have lunch with a friend. Now if the friend and I agreed to meet at a Coca-Cola establishment a restaurant that serves Coca-Cola no problem I'll have the drink that I want but if she suggested a restaurant that's a Pepsi establishment and I do have them all memorized then I would go to Sonic and I'd get my Route 44 that's an extra big Coca-Cola with crushed ice and I'd just walk right on into the restaurant and and sometimes, not often, but once in a while, an employee from the restaurant would say, I'm sorry, ma'am, but you can't bring an outside drink into the restaurant. And if that would happen, I would very politely and gently say, thank you, I know. And when you start serving Coke, I won't need to. <laughs> now, I'm embarrassed to admit that to you. I am. But I'm just trying to be honest and vulnerable. That's pretty snooty, isn't it? And I, I don't like you knowing that about me, but that's what I would say. And I'd sit down and I'd drink my Coke. Now, I, again, I've got them all memorized. I know TGI Fridays is a Coke establishment. McDonald's is always Coke. Chili's is a Coke establishment. But Applebee's is a Pepsi product place. And Taco Bell is, is Pepsi. So I've got them all memorized. Burger King is, is Coca-Cola. Jack in the Box is Pepsi. Uh, and I've got them all memorized. And so I know whichever restaurant we're going to, which serves Coke and which serves Pepsi. If it's a chain restaurant, if it's a local establishment, then I don't have a clue. I've got to call them ahead of time, and I've done that, going, you a Coke or Pepsi place? And if it's a Pepsi place, then I swing by Sonic, get my Route 44, and walk in with it. Well, and you know that when you go to a restaurant and you, you, you buy a Coke off the menu, usually it's about $2.50, isn't it? Somewhere around that price. 
So you're going to have to drink six to eight to get your money's worth, aren't you? That's just common sense. So I'd have a few refills and making sure I get my money's worth, don't want to waste my money. And then you know, those of you who know about Sonic, that from 2 o'clock to 4 o'clock, every single day, seven days a week, it's happy hour. And every soft drink is on for half price. And so I'd have to go through the drive-thru at half hour, get my Route 44 for half off. And then at dinner, I'd go out with a friend again, and we'd go back through the whole Coke establishment or Pepsi establishment. We'd go through the whole scenario again. And then sometime that evening, I'm probably going to get a little thirsty before I go to bed. And you guess what I'm going to get? I'm going to go upstairs to a room I've created called my Coca-Cola Cafe. I've actually got a 1950s or 70s, I'm not sure, Coca-Cola restored machine that's filled with Coke and grape and, and orange and strawberry and IBC root beer and other drinks. But Coca-Cola is the one I choose. And I put in a dime and I pull out the bottle, pop open the lid, and I can have a Coke before I go to bed. Now, so far I'm not seeing a problem, are you? I love Coca-Cola. <laughs> well, God began to deal with me. But I'm kind of slow sometimes, and it took me a while to realize that God was trying to deal with me. See, I don't want you to think for a second, Susie said Coke is a sin. No, I'm not saying that because you're normal people. <laughs> you know how to drink Coke normal. I mean, maybe you have a Coke with some Mexican food or with a burger or with some pizza. You probably don't walk around with an IV unit carrying your Coca-Cola with you everywhere you go. You're normal people. I was not a normal person. And so with God's help, I gave up Coca-Cola for one whole year. Now I'm in the... Oh, don't affirm me. No. Don't, don't, don't encourage me, because if I weren't a Christian, I probably would have killed you for a Coke, right? <laughs> no, but you, now I'm trying to learn to drink it like a normal person. And if I can, then I think God will let me have it in my life. If not, I may need to give it up forever, and I will do that if he asks me, because I really want to be obedient. He was asking me to clear the stage. Susie, Coke has become too important to you. And it had. It had become an idol in my life. Gideon tear down the idols. And so we did tear down the idols. And as I mentioned earlier, it made the men of the city furious. And uh, Judges 6, 28 to 31, the men of the city were angry. They said to his father, Joash, bring out your son so, so he may die because he did such a terrible thing. But when Joash, Gideon's dad, saw the boldness of his son, it stirred something within him. You see, once he had worshipped God, but somehow he had gotten sucked into worshipping idols. And now as he sees this act of courage, Courage that his son has demonstrated something stirring within him and he gives his life back to God and he realizes the stupidity of his Baal idols. You never know how many people that God will impact and influence simply because you choose to be obedient. It works. God will bless others through you. So Joash said to the men of the city, if Baal is real, he can defend himself. Gideon's act of obedience changed his dad's life forever. Now, in Judges 6, 34 to 35, we see Gideon pick up the battle trumpet and blow it with all of God's strength within him. This bugle blast was heard throughout the land, and the, the effect was just electrifying. Men rushed to Gideon's side when they, served, when they heard that war sound from the trumpet. 
Why? Why did so many people rush to Gideon, this common farm boy, who even Scripture says was the least in his family? Society saw him as a loser, well, not because of Gideon, but all because of God. You see, apart from a moving of the Spirit of God, there's no way men would have rallied around Gideon. He had no reputation on which to stand. He had no credentials upon which to impress. And he had no track record of ever doing anything great, but God was moving just like he's moving in your church. God was moving, and when Gideon blew the trumpet, issuing a sound that had not been heard in seven years, men joined him immediately ready to do battle. I'm struck by how many times God uses the least likely to accomplish his purposes. So if for some reason this morning you're thinking, God can't use me because of your lack of skill, maybe your position, because of your past, you're intelligent, you're wrong. In fact, by embracing your weakness and humbly submitting to God's authority, there's no end to what he can accomplish through you. His vision for you is always bigger than yours. He dreams bigger for you than you'll ever dream for yourself. The key, clear the stage. Stick with me. That will start to make sense in just a few minutes. Now, the Midianites had 135,000 people in their army. Gideon only had 32,000. The odds are four to one. Four to one are not good odds, but instead of building up his army, God tells Gideon to clear the stage. Gideon, you don't really need this, this, these, this many people in your army. Clear the stage. Gideon, let anyone go home who's too afraid to fight. And so Gideon decides to run out a big arena in Israel, and he has a, a big pep rally. And he brings all the men in, 32,000, you can imagine. Oh, 32,000 men, testosterone is raging. It's bouncing off the walls. Gideon gets on the microphone, he's going to... He's going to pump them up. And he says, men, we are men's men, aren't we? Yes. And they're joining with him. Men, are you ready to do battle? Yes. Or whatever men do. Men, are you ready to taste blood? Yeah. Dude. Okay. All right. Then he says real quickly and quietly, okay, if anybody's really scared and you're just too afraid to fight, you can just run on home now. He said it that way, so not many people would hear him. You can just run on home now. If you're too scared to fight, just go ahead and leave. 22,000 got up and ran home. What? Wait a minute. What happened to her? Dude, what happened to we're men's men? We're ready to taste blood. We want to do battle. We're ready to kill. What happened to all that? 22,000 got up and left. Oh, my goodness. So let's look at the scorecard now. Midianites still have 135,000. Gideon now only has 10,000. The odds are now 14 to 1. Oh, my goodness. Lord, you've got to do something. No, Gideon, it's time to clear the stage. You don't even need 10,000 men. Gideon, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the river with your men, get a drink of water. I've noticed how some of them drink. Some of them just throw their spears on the ground. They throw themselves flat on the ground, and they lap up the water like sloppy dogs. <laughs> Gideon, not only is that bad manners, but Gideon, when they throw their spear on the ground, they're not uh, uh, soldier, wor soldier worthy because they don't have a weapon on them. Gideon, this is how your men should drink. Just have them bend their knees and cup the water with their hand and bring it to their mouth. All the while, holding the sword, their spear, in their hand. And that way, their eyes can continue to scan the horizon. So if an enemy does approach, he can still see, and he's ready to do battle. Okay? So Gideon, take all your men to the river and have them get a drink. And every man who throws his spear on the ground and laps up the water like dogs, he's not fit to be in your army. Send him home. And so Gideon, 
goes over the water drinking plan with his men. Man, I've been watching you. You're pretty sloppy. Let's raise the bar. Come on. Let's have some etiquette in our lives. First of all, do not ever drop your spear. Keep it in your hand. When we go down to the river, keep that spear in your hand. Don't throw yourselves on the ground face first, lapping up the water like a sloppy dog. Come on, men. Just slightly bend your knees. Cup your hand in the water and bring it to your mouth, all the while keeping your eyes on the horizon, scanning it, looking for the enemy, okay? That's how we're to drink water, okay? And then he repeated it again. Then he repeated it again. And he said, now I want you to repeat it after me. Spear in hand. Spear in hand. Bend your knees and cup your hand. Bend our knees and cup our hand. Bring the water to your mouth. Bring the water to our mouth. All the while, eyes scanning the horizon for the enemy. All the while, eyes scanning the horizon for the enemy. Okay, let's do it again. Spear in hand. I mean, they went through this about five times in a row. They repeated right after Gideon. Finally, Gideon said, okay, we're ready. Now let's go and get a drink of water. Let's go get a drink of water. 9,700 threw their spears on the ground like they'd never heard Gideon, threw themselves on the ground and lapped up the water like sloppy dogs. This leaves Gideon with 300 very thirsty but polite soldiers. <laughs> Let's look at the scorecard now. The Midianites, 135,000 still. Gideon only has 300 soldiers. <gasps> the odds, 450 to 1. Those odds are horrific. You don't go to battle with 450 to 1 odds. But guess what? God doesn't ask us to calculate the odds of success in obeying him. You see, success is obeying God. He calls us to obedience. Now, Gideon had a great strategy. God said, Gideon, here it is. I want you to place 300 of your men here, 300 here, 300 here. The Midianites are down in the valley. You guys are up above them on this little kind of mountainous ridge. And give every one of your men a clay pot. Inside the clay pot, there's a torch. And Gideon, when you blow the bugle, these 100 drop their clay pots on the ground. They smash. Have them hold up the torch. And over here, the same thing. And over here, the same thing. Now, this was a brilliant war strategy. Because although the Midianites were brutal, powerful, arrogant warriors. They were also steeped in superstition and occult practices. And the nighttime terrorized them. And they were suspicious of each other. And so let me set the scene. The bad guys, the Midianites, again, they're down below in the valley. They're all zipped into their sleeping bags, tucked cozily into their tents. And here's Gideon's army, 100, 100, 100, up above the mountainous ridge right above them. And when Gideon blows the trumpet, all of a sudden, 100 men over here smash their clay pots on the ground and hold out their torch. And over here, the same thing. And over here, the same thing. And do you know what that sounds like? Echoing down through the hills. It sounds like hundreds and hundreds of horses echoing and, and running and stampeding down the hills into the Midianites' camp. I mean, it's just terrifying. And so the Midianites are wiping the sleep out of their eyes, coming out of their tents. What's going on? And they hear what they think is hundreds and hundreds of horses. And when they see those 300 torches, they don't see an army of 300. They see an army of 300,000 because it was common military practice in that day for a company of 1,000 soldiers to march behind one single torch. One single torch and 1,000 people behind them who doesn't have a torch. And so they thought they saw 300,000. And when they heard the, what they thought was the horse's hooves, they thought for sure we're being doomed. How many thousands upon thousands upon thousands are coming to attack us. So the Midianites assumed they were not encompassed by 300, but by 300,000. When they heard the crashing of the clay pots and the, saw the torches, they knew they were doomed. And in their superstition, and in their suspicion, in the chaos, and in the confusion, they actually butchered each other. 
God didn't need 300 men, did he? No. He did need a clear stage. He needed a big enough, open enough, wide enough space so that he could move in a huge way. You see, if there are idols in your life, God is limited to how he can work through you. If there's an idol in your life, God is limited to how he can use you. He needs a big, wide, open, huge space to move and work and shine through. He needs you to clear the stage. Oh, God dreams big dreams for you. But he's asking you to tear down the bell, the bell altars. He's asking you to walk away from anything that's causing you to draw apart from God. He's asking you to be willing to give up anything in your life that's too important to you. And an idol doesn't have to be inherently evil. It can be immoral. So whether it's pornography or gambling or alcoholism or alcoholism or drug use or gossip or criticism or romance novels or video game or Pinterest, whatever it could be in your life, even Coca-Cola, if it's become too important to you, it's an idol. And God is saying, clear the stage. Would you be willing to do that this morning? Would you be willing to give up anything that you're thinking about too much, investing too much time or energy or effort or money into? God wants to use you. But first, he's going to ask you to clear the stage. And my friends, right now, it is time for us to clear the stage. Clear the stage and set the sound and the lights ablaze. If that's the measure you must take to crush the idols. Jerk the pews and all the decorations too. Until the congregations fuel and have revival. To the best of our ability, we have cleared our stage this morning. Now it's time for you to clear your stage. The stage of your minds, the stage of your hearts. For you to, for you to put God center stage in your life where he really belongs, what would need to change? What would need to move if you put God really where he needed to be center stage? It's not about golden calves anymore. We're going to play that song one more time as a commitment song. If God has brought something to your mind, would you come forward and clear the stage? Would you come forward and seek him at this altar and say, Father, I'm sorry, I've been wrong. I didn't realize, but yes, that became too important to me. As the video said, when was the last time we got on our knees and prayed until they blistered? <laughs> when was the last time that we called our friends and said, this is where the party ends, I'm staying here and I'm praying through? We have to get it right. God needs and wants to use you, mighty warriors, in this day and age and in this culture. But he can't if you've got a full stage. So this morning, will you 
clear the stage. Clear the stage and set the sound and the lights ablaze. If that's the measure you must take to cross the idols. We have a fancy name for this. It's called sanctification. It's making Jesus Lord of all of our lives. And now that you have cleared the stage, you may be able to see some things that you couldn't see before because it was too cluttered. For instance, now you may notice stage right back in the wings, uh, there's a prop that God needs. Oh, I, I need that prop. I need that attitude. I need that habit. Okay, God, it's yours. And you may, be, you, may see an old, you may see an old dim light hanging down backstage. You couldn't see it before. The stage was too cluttered. And God may say, I need that too. Yes, it's yours, Lord. It's yours. It's yours. And God will continue to show you things in your life. I need that too. Yes, Lord. I cleared the stage. Now, as you keep showing me things that keep climbing back on the stage, I will give them to you. It's total surrender. Will you stand, please? We're going to end just one verse and one in the chorus of I Surrender All. And if anyone else wants to clear the stage, you want to do business with God, now's your time to come because we'll close after this. Come now if you want to pray. Oh.